Hey there, Sarah Boost. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Now, what do I have for you today? Today, we're going to talk about the recent developments in East Asia with a new trade agreement being signed um, between uh, 15 countries. We'll get into that in a moment. And the very interesting resolution to the Nagorno-Karabakh War. That and more, coming up. Alright, alright. Before we get into things, we're gonna fire off the, uh, what should I call this? I'll call it the rapid-fire news. Uh, So we have a shooting at the Arabian Embassy in The Hague, which is in the Netherlands. Uh, The building was sprayed with gunfire. The suspect was accused of terrorist affiliation and intention. Uh, Interesting thing. I couldn't see what it was necessarily about, but maybe they'll get into that uh, in the days to come. Uh, in Mexico, there were heavy rains causing flooding, and the Mexican president, uh, Manuel López Obrador, he is currently under fire for making a decision to open the f- strategic floodgates of a dam in Tabasco, which redirected water away from the city of Villa Hermosa, but it caused floods in the smaller town of Nacajuca. I think I'm pronouncing that rec- correctly, Nacajuca? Uh, he's under fire right now for that very controversial decision. Uh, the controversy surrounding it being he promised to put the poor first, and now he has redirected flood water to a poorer area of town instead of having it hit via Hermosa. Uh, really tough decision, and optics are bad, but what are you going to do? But meanwhile, a ceasefire in Western Sahara, between Western Sahara and Morocco, uh, has been broken. It's, it was nearly 29 years old, and it was broken when the Moroccan military crossed into a buffer zone in Western Sahara after protesters blocked a road that was built by Morocco. These are Western Saharan protesters blocking the road built by Morocco, cutting off trade links between Morocco and Mauritania, which is a country uh, to, like, the southeast of the Western Sahara. The Polisario Front, which is a militant organization that claims to fight for West Saharan independence, uh, is now trying to rally thousands of people to basically reignite the fight, using the incursion by the Moroccan military into this no-go zone as justification of and grounds for war. So we'll see where that pans out. And a brief update on the U.S. elections. The Trump legal team say they claim that they will be disclosing evidence of fraud. Uh, they said last week that they would release the evidence next week. So this is next week. And we'll see where that goes. But now that the rapid fire news is out of the way, we'll get into the big boy topics of today's broadcast. Now, as many of you know, uh, my podcast was started with me talking about the Nagorno-Karabakh war between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Now, that first episode I did has like 70 views, which is uh, a lot compared to the views I've been getting on the other ones. Uh, Almost more than the rest of them combined. Nah. Well, almost. It was a very big episode and a very nice start to this little podcast I'm doing. Very happy about that. It grows every week. (laughs) And hopefully those 70 people will find their way to the rest of my episodes. But Nagorno-Karabakh, which is also known as Artsakh, but I'm clarifying that I will be referring to it as Nagorno-Karabakh, um... This is a dispute between Armenia and Azerbaijan. For those of you who don't know, Nagorno-Karabakh is an Armenian enclave within Azerbaijan. It is primarily ethnic Armenian. 
and it's a point of contention between the two countries. And they fought multiple wars. They fought a war over it before in the 1990s. And there was a ceasefire that was broken uh, multiple times. But it was this recent breaking of their ceasefires that led to the weeks-long fighting that went on. Now, I covered it in the first two episodes, and then I stopped covering it because it kind of entered into stalemate territory while both sides were mobilizing men. And I brought up how it reminded me of uh, seeing the videos of people going to the recruiting stations. reminded me of uh, the videos you'd see of what were won, where you'd have these masses of men getting on the trains, all happy and giddy to go to war. But now, the conflict which was on and off due to multiple ceasefires in this iteration of the fighting, uh, which were broken. Some of those ceasefires were broken within hours of the ceasefire being agreed upon. And, but during the moments when the ceasefires were up, the combatants on both sides exchanged prisoners and the dead. The Russian diplomats had succeeded in bringing the two sides to the table, even as both countries were accusing each other of breaking ceasefires and shelling one another. Eh, which, after accusing the other of breaking the ceasefire, they then proceeded to break the ceasefire. Both Armenia and Azerbaijan had previously rejected calls for peace. Um, and currently, I'm sure they're still tallying the dead, but we have 500 confirmed dead, and at least 30 of which were from bombardments of schools and hundreds more are likely dead and wounded that they're not telling us about because we don't really have the military numbers as much as we have the civilian losses so likely sometime in the next couple weeks you'll see the military numbers come out and Turkey got itself involved by sending uh, mercenaries and militants jihadist Islamic militants into Azerbaijan uh, and it is currently unknown if they'll leave. I'd imagine that in time, the real winner of this conflict will root them out. But uh, for now, they are a major what-if, or rather a major question. They're like a, lo a loose end, so to speak. And Armenia had reserved the right to attack any Azerbaijani military asset, and Armenia could have called in its alliance with Russia. However... It seems that will be unlikely to happen as it is now an ultimately unnecessary move. And why? It's because the Nagorno-Karabakh war was not won by either Armenia or Azerbaijan, and it did not end in a stalemate despite the fighting ending in a stalemate. The war was won by Russia. That's right. Russia is the big winner of a war that they didn't even fight or send troops to assist in. Here's how. So, uh, last week, and this is like early last week, I'm pretty sure I saw this like right after I finished recording last week's podcast, 400 Russian peacekeepers, and we're going to put that in quotation marks, they were sent into Armenia and Azerbaijan notably the Nagorno-Karabakh region itself. The peacekeepers are supposed to be there for five years, and then they'll leave, but uh, translation, indefinitely. They're going to be there indefinitely. Or maybe the Russians are going to do something uniquely Russian where they'll take the specific group of 400 men and rotate them out for a different group of 400 men and say, the, see, the peacekeepers left after five years. They're not leaving. Okay, we'll, we'll just get that out of the way right now. They are not leaving. The Armenian army, however, is forced to withdraw from the territory, the occupied territory that they have taken in Azerbaijan by December 1st, so uh, about two weeks from now. And Azerbaijan was forced to agree to a road link between Nagorno-Karabakh and Armenia proper. Similarly, Armenia was made to agree to a road link between Nakhichevan. Nakhichevan. I'll figure out how to pronounce that in time. Nakhichevan and Azerbaijan proper. 
uh, Nakhichevan is an Azerbaijani enclave in Armenia. So they both have enclaves in each other's territories. And if you look on a map, Nakhichevan is a, the piece of um, Azerbaijan that's right next to Turkey. So there's a, a thick strip of Armenia separating it and Azerbaijan proper. But now they're going to be getting road links between their enclaves. There were protests in our the Armenian and Azerbaijani capitals over the peace agreement. Uh, but what... Uh, well, well, that was to be expected. Both sides were actually mobilizing for a larger scale conflict. And now the conflict has ended. But what caught my attention was how swift the deployment of troops by Russia was. And it leads me to question... Was this the purpose of the military drills that they did in the Caucasus? Because if you remember a couple weeks back, I had covered they the Russians did military drills in the Caucasus. Hmm, very interesting. There was a war in the Caucasus, and they did a military drill in the Caucasus. What could have been the purpose? Maybe it was to test the logistical strength that they had in the region. Like, could they support large? If they could support large groups of people in the Caucasus, they could surely support a deployment of, say, 400 peacekeepers into these lower Caucasus region. Very, very interesting. Maybe it's just a coincidence. I I say not because speculation is the fun part. But yeah, it was an interesting thing to me how swift they moved in. It was like hours after the agreement had been signed and their troops were in the region and like spread out. Very, very interesting. But now, with the Caucasus on lockdown, Russia's southern approaches are secured because now they have troops not on the Armenian and Azerbaijani borders. So anyone who wants to go in, of course, through the legal means to go into the country, you're going to be met with Russian border patrol. That's what they are now. They're, they're not, they're not going to be occupiers. Well, they are. They're not going to be peacekeepers. This is the new Border Patrol. Okay. This is the new Border Patrol. And these two countries, Armenia and Azerbaijan, are now unofficial additions to the Russian Federation. Very unofficial. Uh, But with the Caucasus on lockdown... Oh, I mentioned that the Russian southern approaches are now secured... Crimea, Belarus, and the Caucasus are down. And that leaves the Baltics, Ukraine, and Central Asia up next. And if I had to guess which direction they would likely be going in, I would likely say uh, either between the Ukraine and Central Asia. Uh, They can probably do with not going into Central Asia for now, but the Ukraine is a really big what-if for them right now. A what if that the Russians likely don't feel like tolerating for too much longer, especially if they feel that they can secure the country. Now, there's uh, in U.S. influence there, but given how the elections may or may not shake out, that influence could potentially be removed significantly enough that the Russians could insert themselves in securing Ukraine. The Baltics, I feel, if the Russians were to make a move to secure them, and the Baltics being Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, they would probably be last on the list. So there's way more risk involved with trying to take them than even just through, like, uh, subversion. There's way more risk in trying to take them than anywhere else, because Russia's enemies can reach the Baltics, Russia's enemies can't really get to the Caucasus except for Turkey. The Russia's enemies have easy enough access to the Ukraine, but the Ukraine is kind of a contentious issue. But Central Asia, however, is untouchable for most of Russia's enemies. China has influence there, but I wouldn't exactly call Russia and China enemies, more so rivals that lean toward being friendly. More often than not, anyway. But those are three regions within the former Soviet space that we should be on the lookout now. uh, Now that the Caucasus are down. 
Iran, I mentioned, had the potential to get involved. And due to the Azeri minorities within Iran, but they managed to stay out of it. So that's good for Iran. No internal issues. Now, I brought up uh, before the populations of Azerbaijan and Armenia, which collectively is about 12.8 million people, who are now under de facto Russian rule. Again, these are now informal additions to the Russian Federation. They're even, effectively, their border is now going to be treated like an internal border in time because they have road links crossing the borders so they can reach their uh, their enclaves. That wouldn't necessarily be an easy thing to do unless you were the internal provinces of a larger government, like, say, Russia. So, they are now on the path towards being formally integrated. Whether they realize that or not is in, an entirely different question. Uh, I feel that they're m m too busy right now being angry at each other to see that. But it will show up in the probably just the months to come as the Russians assert their influence there. Uh, especially with the Turkish militants there, well, not the Turkish, the Islamic militants that Turkey sent into the region, with Russian troops there, they're probably going to root them out. Because I don't think the Russians take kindly to uh, Islamic militants anywhere near their borders. Namely, namely right next to Chechnya and Dagestan. So... I expect them to either leave the militants. They'll either leave or they'll get blown up by the Russians. And uh, with the conflict over, Azerbaijan's oil and gas infrastructure is no longer at risk. That was 650,000 barrels of oil and gas a day. And Russia is on the road to empire again. Now, I have a little question mark right now uh, next to that statement. So it's uh, Russia on the road to empire again, question mark. But I think they are. I think they are. That's multiple act approaches into Russian territory that are secured. Ukraine is a work in progress. There is a war there, a technically civil war. But with enough Russian support, I feel the Ukrainians would lose that fight to their rebels who want to secede to Russia, and I brought up in my first episode, if the secessionists that in the Ukraine who want to be a part of Russia, if they were to gain control over all of Ukraine, you would see all of Ukraine secede to Russia, giving them a vast swaths of the European continent back to Russia. It would be very interesting to see, very interesting to watch, and something to look out for in the years to come likely sometime within this decade don't know exactly when but they'll probably move towards securing Ukraine eventually right now their attention is in the Caucasus and hunkering down Turkey is the big loser in all of this they were denied influence in the Caucasus because they were not included in the peace deal uh, their president Erdogan was trying to insert himself into uh, the peace negotiations, but he was blocked by a Russian delegation. So the Russians unilaterally enforced this peace deal and are now unilaterally occupying the region and will probably, in the future, unilaterally annex the region. So, uh, we'll see how long it takes for people to update their maps on this one took him a little bit to update Crimea, and now they'll have to update the, the Caucasus as being Russia. They were So Turkey was denied influence in the Caucasus, and there's really only one direction left for them to go, which is south. Now, I brought up in my first episode, a lot of this is tying back to the first episode. If you haven't watched it, go watch it. Well, listen to it. Turkey is left with only one direction left to go, and that's south. Now, I brought up a whole bunch of reasons why going south would be the most beneficial and rewarding for them to do. Uh, namely, oil and religious oil, the breadbasket of Egypt, uh, the economic control over the Soviet, 
economics and being control of the Suez Canal, which is also in Egypt, and religious uh, dominance, really, if they were to hold the holy cities of Mecca and Medina and Jerusalem. It would make them the undisputed leader of the Islamic world and the undisputed champion. So if they were to go south, which is really the only direction left they have to go, and they're already pursuing going south, that leaves them with very little opposition. Because right now, they are already active in Cyprus, uh, which is current, which was militarily occupied by Turkey before, and now there's technically two Cyprus's. One of them is a Turkish Republic of Cyprus, and the other one is the Cyprus. And right now, just a while ago, Turkey proposed two separate states' solution to the Cyprus question, whereas before, the both sides were negotiating a reunion. Now Turkey is outright saying, separate. And from there, you could likely see the um, the international law... Um, legal battle going on between Turkey and Greece if there was a actual split between northern Cyprus and Cyprus which is the northern Cyprus being the Turkish part you could see them make the argument of territorial waters for northern Cyprus and you could see the same thing that Turkey was trying to do with Libya they could do with Cyprus effectively securing what would otherwise be Greek and Cyprus waters for Turkey. So there's that, a major geopolitical power play, especially with natural gas of the eastern Mediterranean at stake, and the physical security of Turkey from Greece and potential outside Greek help at stake. Now, I mentioned they had little opposition. France is that opposition. Now, other than Russia, France is the only power capable and willing to halt Turkish expansionism southward. However, unlike before when they stepped in to intervene, the French economy, going into this second lockdown, may find itself far too weak to intervene the next time. They, The French may find themselves, at the very least temporarily, unable to do anything about Turkey in the near future. And the same could be true for Syria, as an economic crisis in Syria, not likely not the lockdowns, but rather the civil war, and apparently a banking crisis in Lebanon, which is where many Syrians kept their money. I learned that from uh, the Duran. So, a combination of the banking crisis and civil war has led to economic crisis. So, when you combine economic crisis plus civil war, that equals ripe for the taking post-Civil War, after they've demilitarized, likely. when Whenever they're, it's said and done and they start drawing down their mobilization, they'll be open for the taking. And the Turks, after consolidating themselves and learning from all of their these defeats that they've been suffering lately, they could move in. They could send in their jihadists, their militant groups, to destabilize and then just walk in. The Turks are currently trying to pull a Saudi Arabia. They're learning through trial and error how to become Saudi Arabia, just without the oil, you know, sponsoring terrorist groups uh, to get what they want. And the French removing themselves, from, essentially removing themselves from the equation with the social unrest and economic strain that is likely to follow a second lockdown Turkey will be given, again, at least temporarily, a free hand in the Middle East. Now, they can't, they, again, they can't go north. Russia's there. They can't go to the west because Greece and France are there. So they can go south. And there's a whole lot to gain south. And, but post-recovery, however, France... Uh, given the events with the beheadings and the harsh stance that Macron has taken against Islam, and particularly Islamic violence, 
we could see France take a far harsher stance on Islamic militant groups. And from there, it wouldn't be hard to imagine France taking a harsh step on the countries that enable those militant groups. So Saudi Arabia, Lebanon, and of course, Turkey. What does that mean? It means the French geopolitical slumber is over. Now, we will get to the other developments in East Asia in just a moment. I'll see you then. Alright, we're back. We just talked about the uh, tensions bring between France and Islamic nations. Well, we touched up on it while talking about Turkey and what they're likely to do post-Caucasus War and how that will create tensions between them and France. So there's that. The French political geo the French geopolitical slumber is over, excuse me. But now, move on to the next segment. Uh we talk about Israeli agents assassinate Al-Qaeda members in a Tehran in Tehran, Iran. Tehran is the capital of Iran. And it was literally two dudes on a motorcycle. <laughs> Two dudes on a motorcycle doing a drive-by. This is, oh my goodness, this is literally something straight out of an action movie. I I, I don't even know what to say to this. <laughs> I shouldn't, <laughs> uh, we shouldn't be laughing about death, but come on now. Listen, could you imagine being that guy? Could you imagine being that guy, seeing two dudes on a motorcycle pull up and kill your boss? What, what do you say after that? Oh my goodness. But anyway. <laughs> In other news, well, we have yet to see how Iran responds to this. They likely won't, it likely won't be well. That's that's a national humiliation right there. So we'll see how that goes. And it feeds into a grander th- uh, theme that I've noticed in my gathering of stuff and topics for this episode. I'll get into that in a moment. And, but in other news, the UN has failed to broker a peace in the Libyan civil war. The talks for an agreement on a transitional government have failed. However, the talks for an election, which will be held on December 24th, those talks succeeded. So, we'll see where that goes. Now, the country is in a civil war, and if the elections in America are anything to go off of, um, well, if elections period this year are anything to go off of, you could likely see the conflict, uh, it could just fan the flames if the election ends up being disputed. And considering that these guys are already at war, um, it could get really bad. No, I brought up, and wow, everything is just really tying into that first episode I did. But I brought up how the Libyan uh, civil war is a part of a proxy war between Turkey and other members. Uh, Russia, France, they're there. Uh, Greece is there. Egypt is there. And Turkey is there. And I brought up that Turkey was going to go south. That means, well, if you look at a map of the old Ottoman Empire, you could see that their borders stretched out across northern Africa, which would include modern-day Libya. And in my little breakdown of the civil war, there was General Hafdar, he's the rebel forces, and there was the Libyan government. Now, Turkey is friendly with the Libyan government, and they had agreements and plans for their their exclusive economic zones in the eastern Mediterranean to overlap one another, which would effectively cut off anybody who they didn't like from getting into the eastern Mediterranean, which would be the area of the Mediterranean closer to, like, Egypt and Israel and Syria, and, of course, Turkey. But... The way I broke it down was it was a more of a proxy war between the Turks and other members, and that the Turks 
were probably uh, they had the most to gain from winning. I'll I'll say that much. They had the most to gain from winning, because if Turkey were to say push out southward militarily, and we could potentially see that with many countries being crippled economically due to lockdowns uh, from COVID, you could see the Turks try to move in militarily southward. Now, that would mean Syria, and with the Syrian civil war coming to a potential close in the near future, they could draw down their troops and become an easy target for Turkey. Libya is a potential player, a willing player, in that game. Now, will Turkey just outright... Will Libya agree to being annexed by Turkey? Probably not on their own. But they don't necessarily need to be annexed right now. Annexing isn't really on the table for countries that aren't Russia and China right now. But it, I'd imagine Turkey would be next on the list of countries to start playing the game of annexing. <clears throat> Excuse me. What Turkey could do is they could use Libya as a launching ground into Egypt. Egypt has a lot for Turkey there. There's a lot for Turkey to gain by taking Egypt. You have the breadbasket of the Nile, a hundred million people, and the Suez Canal. Those three factors alone are very, very significant because, one, the breadbasket, you could have food and export food to other countries, and you could feed, <laughs> you could feed the government coffers that way. And quite literally feed the population that way. Number two, the hundred million plus people living in Egypt would serve as a very large internal market for Turkey to sell its goods to. A hundred million people is quite a lot. It's actually more people in Egypt than there are in Turkey. Turkey has around 80 million, I believe. So you could see a neo mercantilist uh, relation should the Turks gain control over Egypt and they could force feed the Egyptians their products similarly to how the British did with their colonies and the Turks would make lots of money doing that and they wouldn't have to go outside technically outside of their own borders to do it then you have the Suez Canal the Suez Canal there is about 18 trillion dollars of trade that flows through that every year. Now imagine what Turkey could gain by putting a tax or a a tollway on that uh the channel. Turkey Turkish government coffers would be overflowing with riches uh from oil trying to leave because if they were to control Egypt, they would have the legal grounds for control over basically the entirety of the Mediterranean, the Eastern Mediterranean, excuse me. So even pipelines that would be trying to traverse the Mediterranean into Europe proper, Turkey could pay fine. Turkey could not pay fine. They could take fines and demand payment for the movement of oil and natural gas through those pipelines. And anything that had to come by ship through the Suez Canal, you'd have to pay Turkey. It would literally be for them the new spice trade. Except instead of spices, you would have oil and manufactured goods. Oil from the Middle East, manufactured goods from either Europe or China. Going to either Europe or to the Chinese markets. The Turks would also be able to charge through via tariffs uh, for access into its own market, which, if they were to control Egypt, would mean a market of 180 million people. That's a lot. Especially given the really agrarian nature of the Egyptian populace. So they, they would be dependent largely on outside forces for more industrial manufactured goods they do have a large army though but the 
Turks. How do I put this? Uh, they'd be they'd be able to defend themselves from Turkey if Turkey were to try to cross the Suez Canal. But whether or not they'd be able to defend themselves from a Turkish military that is uh, up to date and they're fighting in the open desert in the border region between Egypt and Libya, that could potentially be a different equation, especially with the Turks bringing in lasers to the equation. I'm not kidding. They are using lasers to shoot down drones. And the environment is perfect for it. You're talking deserts where there's little humidity to get in the way. There's little cloud cover because, again, there's not much in the way of water. It would be perfect for laser direct energy warfare. And the Turks could set up a a laser equivalent of an S-400 anti-air battery and just start shooting down drones and planes or even go messing with tanks. I don't know how well that would work out for them. But it'd be a, a Turk... Uh, no pun intended. It'd be a turkey shoot for whoever had the better military. And that could, at that point potentially be Turkey with all the lessons from war that they're gaining now. Turkey went through a coup uh, a couple years ago and they the military tried to overthrow the government and they they failed so Erdogan has purged the military so now just like the Soviet Union uh, he's trying to regain the experience that was lost during the purges and by that point whenever they get strong enough to challenge Egypt, it could potentially be a wash. It could potentially be a real wash. Especially if Turkey's military by that point is developed and designed to fight in the Middle East. Rather than, say, on the battlefields of Europe or in the mountains of Iran. Turkey could have quite a significant advantage. And again, there is a lot to gain by striking south. Now... Why, where does that bring us with the Libyan Civil War? It brings us to the question of whether or not Turkey will have a friendly government in Libya. Because again, it would be easier for them to challenge Egypt from a land border than it would for them to challenge them from the other side of the Suez Canal. So, I'm guessing that should things get really bad, after this election, uh, on the 24th of December, you could see Turk, the, the Turks take a greater role in the civil war. And they could really go hard, you, sending in their militants, of course, because they seem to be reluctant to deploy troops uh, more well, far from their borders. That could change in time. But they'll they'll definitely send more militants to the region. And the deployment of those militants would be disguised by the chaos of a Libyan election. You could see some really crazy stuff happen in Libya. I'll just say that. I'll say that, and we'll end that there. I've gone on a bit of a rant about the new Ottoman Empire, but the prospects are there. Right. The prospects really are there, and especially if they get better at the spawning militant game than Arabia, you could have them use Arabia's tricks against them to destabilize Arabia and just walk in, and suddenly the oil is theirs. Because uh, I don't imagine the Saudi royal family would be able to maintain control if vast swaths of their countryside were to rise up against them, spawned by Turkey. So, there's that. There's that in a nutshell, really. Uh, Lots to look out for in the Middle East, just off the regional players. And that, again, plays into a greater theme that I'll talk about uh, in a minute. But we have the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. This is a economic agreement, this is a economic trade agreement in Asia, East Asia specifically, between 15 countries. 
if I'm not mistaken, they are all ASEAN members. But these countries are South Korea, Japan, Vietnam, Laos, the Philippines, Cambodia, Burma, Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, Singapore, Australia, New Zealand, Brunei, and of course, China. Now, collectively, these countries have a population of 2.2 billion people and account for 30% of the global economy. India was supposed to be in the agreement, but was notably not included in when the agreement was finalized. China, being the biggest player in the deal, is likely going to have far greater influence over the other members, especially with India not being there. So, what do I expect? I expect them to use, in time, the economic leverage of this deal to try to strong-arm the members into things that China wants, like giving in on territorial concessions in, say, the South China Sea dispute. I see that happening, and it probably will happen soon. There's the also the goal by the Chinese, which is a very... It's not necessarily stated, but it's a very likely goal, is to reduce Chinese dependence on U.S. markets for its exported goods. And potentially, given the, the way it's shaking out... This could potentially be this could potentially be let me get my English together a new tributary system. The old Chinese dynasties had their tributaries and this could be the new tributary system with lots more people. Now, and as the Chinese continue to expand their navy and use their belt and road to give themselves friendly ports at certain locations, you could see the Chinese navy be deployed in unconventional locations like say the waters of a country that disagrees with China on who controls what portions of the South China Sea and this uh, again plays into the, the the real depth of this Cold War between them and India because you have many of these countries that are uh, geopolitically opposed to China because uh, they don't want China encroaching on their territorial waters. But these countries are also economically dependent on China, and you can't exactly resist China if your economy goes into freefall because you were overly dependent on China. Now, uh, it, they're in a really tough spot, these countries who are dependent on China. They're in a very, 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 very tough spot. Because, again, they are opposed to China geopolitically, but dependent on them economically. So, I guess the question that many of them are asking is, well, how do you defend yourself from this giant at your doorstep? And I guess their solution that they've come up with is you develop. You develop, you get a stronger economy, and because with a stronger economy, you can build a stronger military. Now... Uh, how successful that'll be, who knows? We can at the very least count the Vietnamese on the list of countries that won't uh, be taken militarily. So, at, le at the very least, Vietnam will be safe, quotations marks. But, uh, uh, oh, Ty was Taiwan included? Oh no, Taiwan was not included in the agreement. So, they're out. And one of the interesting things that was noted was that it's the first agreement that South Korea, Japan, and China have all signed on on. Which is interesting because they hate each other. But... Uh, <laughs> they hate each other. We'll see what India does because uh, one of the very, very interesting things that I noted a couple weeks back was that they have a military pact with Japan. So the geopolitics is there, and this seems to be more of an economic thing. But I'm interested to see how India responds. Because with India not being in the agreement, that India could have been a counterweight to China in this agreement. But they're not here, 
which means China is likely to going to hold outsized leverage. And I expect many, if not all, of these countries to receive invitations to China's Belt and Road Initiative, which they will probably use this regional comprehensive economic partnership to push Belt and Road into Southeast Asia and Oceania because Australia and New Zealand are part of this agreement as well, which could potentially give China leverage over them. And China gets sources a lot of its raw materials from Australia, so if they're hunkering down on this region specifically, you could see them try to exert more influence than they already do. Australia has issues with Chinese spies and diplomats uh, in their government, and uh, government officials who are sympathetic to China, uh, to the point where it's a national security threat. So you could see that accelerated if the Chinese were to make a concerted effort to really hunker down on this region, which I think they'll they'll do. I really think that they'll do it. So this is a lot of people. It's a very large economic zone. And by excluding India, again, the Chinese are going to have lots of power. And, uh, of course, the people talking about it, they noted that America isn't here, and that it's a continuing trend of the decline. We'll see where that goes, because America is focusing on itself. And, uh, yeah. But my main takeaway from all of this is that we are seeing a return to the old way of doing things. What do I mean by that? I mean that countries are now acting more unilaterally. And I know it's weird to make that point, given that I just told you about an international agreement, which is multilateralism, but... Even then, it's overshadowed by the unilateralism that is Chinese expansion. I brought up, I believe I brought up uh, in one of my other episodes, how international law doesn't really mean anything. And if I haven't brought it up, I meant to, because it's something that I've observed in the months prior to even starting this podcast. Uh, International law is only real when someone is there to enforce it. And I guess it's, that's the truth for law in general, not just international law. But there's no one there really to enforce international law. Because what are you going to do if, say, Germany were to start breaking international law and France were to start breaking international law? What are you going to do as tiny Luxembourg. Even if you sue them, they'll, they'll just go on about their business. You think they're going to stop? Because China hasn't. It's, it's like a... It's an honor system, really, at this point. And I guess it's always been an honor system, given that if America didn't feel like enforcing international law on you, you could get away with breaking it. Or if you were strong enough so that America couldn't enforce international law on you, you could get away with breaking international law. And what are we seeing now? China is sufficiently strong enough to ignore America and ignore American attempts at enforcing international law, and so they are breaking international law. Turkey is being very sporadic in its region, and America is unwilling to involve itself over there, so it gets away with breaking international law. There was the French to try to stop them, but what happens when France is busy dealing with itself and can't look at Turkey and what Turkey's doing? Russia routinely invades uh, its former Soviet neighbors, Ukraine, Georgia, and now Armenia and Azerbaijan. Who stops them? 
what international law is going to stop the Russians from doing what the Russians feel that they need to do. There's nothing. Nothing stopping them unless you have a, a mega power because America can't walk into Russia and stop them from doing things that America doesn't like. And if the Cold War is anything to go off of, they don't want to. And the same is now becoming true with China, and it's likely true with India as well. Europe as a whole is being largely ignored by America as America retrenches and turns inward, which I have brought up is a very steep slope and very slippery slope into isolationism with multiple historical precedents being set already within American history. So with the real, you know, absence of international law, that leaves countries who catch on to the lack of international law, or rather the lack of anybody to enforce them, the door is left open for countries to do things the way they used to. And how did countries used to do things? Well, how countries used to do things was by force and unilaterally, unilateral diplomacy. That's the world I see coming. Because countries that are weaker will resort to multilateralism and multi-international agreements for cooperation. Countries that are strong will either ignore those agreements and do what they want, or they will join them purely to exercise undue influence, or rather outsized influence, in the other members if they feel that the other members are weaker than them, or if the other members just are weaker than them. Uh, and I guess examples, the precedent that's already been set was what happened to the League of Nations during World War II, or in the lead-up to World War II, where Ethiopia was being invaded, nothing was done to stop Italy. And when Japan invaded China, and the League of Nations tried to call them out on it, the Japanese delegation just walked out and never came back. And it took, atomic, it took two atomic bombs to stop them. So we could be seeing the beginnings of something like that today, as countries increasingly turn to themselves and start relying on themselves and immediate or more reliable allies to get what they want out of the world. And with Russia, that would be China and Syria. And that's really China, Syria, that's really about it. Iran is kind of friendly. And the Caucasus was a big question mark hanging over Russia's head. And that is now no longer the case. Russia did not resort to international mediation for this. They resorted to themselves, unilateral action. So the end of international, the end of the illusion of international order is what I see, especially as there is currently no one country that can replace America as the enforcer of said international order. And so what you'll get, what I'm increasingly observing and what I really noticed gathering information for this episode, uh, is that regional players are taking a more active role in their region. Regional disputes will be settled increasingly by regional powers. The Eastern Mediterranean was solved by regional powers. Well, it's only temporarily been resolved. France is probably not going to be able to come back after the second lockdowns so that will leave the conf the not the conflict the dispute open again and from there it will be solved by regional powers be it Turkey Egypt or Greece or maybe Israel steps in the dispute between Israel and Iran is ongoing it didn't end even with America being there 
So it's likely going to come down to the regional players. We just saw with the Caucasus that America was nowhere to be found. The French tried to do a delegation, but it was ultimately solved by a regional player, and that was Russia, who was right there. And you saw involvement by other regional player, Turkey, and a potential for Iran to get involved. Iran stayed out. Turkey went in. Russia wins. These are regional disputes that are settled by increasingly regional powers. America's exiting stage left, and the French are likely going to be forced to turn inwards, so the Middle East and all of its conflicts and all of its turmoils are, for the foreseeable future, probably going to be an exclusively Middle Eastern uh, game. And the same is likely to be true with East Asia. And the Cold War going on between the giants, China and India. That geopolitical struggle, and you'll probably see people start to catch on when things really heat up, that it is, in fact, a Cold War between China and India, rather than America and China. As it starts to heat up, you will see that this is going to be purely an Asian theater. Almost exclusively an Asian theater. The economies are large enough, the populations are large enough, and outside forces are sufficiently weak enough to where this will be an exclusively Asian affair. China and India. They will be skirmishing on their borders. Real skirmish. I know I keep using dispute and skirmish uh, interchangeably, but skirmishes on the border. You'll see higher tensions between uh, Pakistan and India. Maybe they'll shoot down another jet or two. You'll see China ramming uh, people's boats in the South China Sea, and you could see India respond in kind to the, uh, what is it, the, the militia that the Chinese have, where it's civilian fishing vessels uh, moving into the disputed waters. You could see China, you could see, not Chinese, Indian naval vessels go ramming speed into those crafts. And, well, you can see a lot happen. Because, well, America is currently the only outside power able to step in, but it is increasingly unwilling to do so. So, what happens when the global superpower goes home? Regional disputes become regional issues. Even in, say, South America right now, a a region that is actually close to home for America... Venezuela is in turmoil, and it that turmoil is going to be solved by an internal force. America, uh, I, the Trump administration has backed uh, the Juan Guaido. I think his name was the one. He was the contestant against Maduro in the last Venezuelan election. America has recognized him and not Maduro as the president of Venezuela, but that's about it. That's about it. Venezuela's crisis will, from that point on, be solved by Venezuela. And just looking at America itself, America's internal struggles right now are going to be solved by America. The border, the issue at the border, the U.S.-Mexican border is being solved by the U.S. and Mexico. Mexico is enforcing its southern border, and America has taken a harsher stance on border control. It's a bit of a controversial thing here, not so much so in Mexico, at least from what I can gather. But these are, again, regional issues being solved by regional powers. And that's the world I see moving forward. It's a return to, well, normal. Because if you think about it, China did not step in during the Napoleonic Wars. Africa did, no African nation stepped in during the Napoleonic Wars. The Ottomans stayed out of the Napoleonic Wars and they were right there. They could have helped with the invasion of Russia, but they didn't. They just signed a peace with Russia, in fact. These are increasingly regional conflicts, disputes, which will be settled by increasingly regional players. 
And I think it's going to be uh, a really interesting development, especially for uh, people like me who've grown up in this era where everything is international, everything is interconnected, everything is everything that happens over here happens over there. But moving forward, we could see that the reverse can be true, where everything is regional, everything is unilateral, and every nothing that happens over here is worth mentioning over there. That's the world I see moving forward. It's going to be very different, I'll say that much. Very different, and it's likely going to create a rise in militancy, and by that I mean a rise in armies, period, as countries increasingly resort to themselves to take care of their own needs. And sometimes that's going to require a military, a military worthy of the name. The Russians have it down. The Turks are getting it down. The Chinese are trying to get it down. Uh, India, Pakistan, they have it down. So, I guess the interesting thing to look out for is when Europe starts to get the picture. Likely, it's likely going to be Britain and France first. I don't count Germany out. They can do really massive things in really short amounts of time. But for now, it's looking like it's going to be either Britain or France that uh, really start ramping up on their military. Again, the French geopolitical slumber is over. The British geopolitical slumber ended officially with Brexit and was solidified with the referendum that they did last year uh, around uh, about... It was in December, the December elections of last year in Britain. So both of those countries are European nations who have awoken from their geopolitical slumber. And given the actions taken during this crisis, their rivalry has been reignited. And that's going to be a rivalry carried out between, you guessed it, Britain and France. Nobody else. That's the future moving look, uh, moving forward. It'll be very entertaining to watch, you know, from all the way over here on the other side of the Atlantic... <laughs> but yeah that's that was a weird well not necessarily weird but a consistent theme that I've been noticing just in uh gathering the news for today's podcast and you have no idea how excited I was uh with the caucuses but uh I guess we'll wrap things up in a moment here and I'll it gets exactly why in a moment Okay, we're back, and we're going to start wrapping things up here. And Yeah, you have you have no idea how excited I was when I saw that the Russians had sent in their quote-unquote peacekeepers into the Caucasus. I'm like, oh my god, oh my god, it's happening. It's happening. Here we go. Go, go, gadget, Russian Empire. But, uh, well, I, I don't imagine the people living there are very excited about that development. But hey, when you're on the other side of the Atlantic, well, when you're on the wrong side of the ocean, you can you can be happy about these things. You can get excited. But, um, yeah, uh, I predicted this, you know. You know, remember way back when I first started this, when I first talked about this, and I mentioned the potential reasons why Russia hadn't involved themselves immediately, and why they hadn't brokered a deal yet, and how, why it seemed like they were so, why it seemed like they had lost their touch. I brought it up. That they could have been planning something, something very smart for the Russians. I brought up their win-win scenario, where either they walk in, would they they could either call in their alliance with Armenia and walk into Azerbaijan. The Caucasus are theirs, or they let both sides tire each other out, fighting, and then they mediate a peace, where they walk in and secure both sides. And Russia wins. And they did exactly that. This was the, Rus- the Russian win-win situation that I brought up. I couldn't believe it. I literally, I couldn't believe it. I, w- I felt so vindicated. I felt so right. <laughs> and now that I have this podcast, I have recorded evidence of being right. So I look forward to more days like that. But I definitely don't look forward to the days of having recorded evidence of being wrong. But we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. 
But needless to say, all those developments, particularly the one in the Caucasus, tying us back to our the beginnings of my little geopolitical podcast, it was very it's been a very interesting week, at least for me personally. Very interesting week. And I imagine I'll probably have to do some sort of update, uh, some sort of real update on the U.S. elections next time, uh, assuming the Trump campaign follows through on the evidence that they say that they'll be dropping this week. I imagine that they'll, if it doesn't happen this week, they'll probably do something in the lead up to December 14th, which is when the real certification of the election happens. So, the final certification, so to speak. So... I guess be on the lookout for that and any wild things that they might try to do in the meantime. But yeah, I think today's been a good episode. And well, that's uh, that's about it for today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast and my geopolitical podcast. Uh, the world is changing. And if these last few weeks are anything to go off of, it's changing fast. But as always... We are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I have been your host, Haishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So, till we meet again next Monday, Servus.